Okay, so what I want to talk about today is about uh, the places where stocks uh, are exchanged, and or bonds or other uh, securities, and it's another huge industry. Uh, I would say it's part of our information uh, technology, our information network, because what we have to do is find uh, a national or international price for a security. The problem is that uh, when uh, when uh, securities are are traded without a central market, different people will be getting different prices for the same thing. Uh, we have what's called uh, maybe the term. Uh, what markets do for us is uh, the important term is price discovery. That means that uh, there is a market price that an asset would have if everybody in the whole world were free to buy and sell uh, the asset on the same market and at, at the same time. Uh, but if you don't have an, uh, uh, an organized exchange, uh, which is open and available to everybody without a lot of cost, then you don't have effective price discovery. And that means that nobody knows what the asset is worth um, in, a, in the whole market. We take price discovery for granted, but we have to realize that there's a technology that brought us that. Uh, and it's a technology that I want to emphasize has been improving over the years. It's not static. Um, so, uh, I wanted to start by just defining some important terms uh, regarding exchange of uh, securities. Uh, and one important term is broker. And I'll put it over here. Another one is dealer. Uh, that's the two kind of people who uh, who trade uh, securities, uh, and uh, uh, it's important to keep uh, the the concept. Uh, and so, um, one thing that's used to describe is we start with the letters B O A C. That sounds like it's what Brit British Overseas Air Corporation, but that's not what I mean. Uh, this is a mnemonic to remember broker. Uh, it says brokers uh, act on behalf uh, for others as an agent uh, for which they earn a commission. Okay. So uh, a broker goes between two people, uh, and uh, the two people trade with each other. The broker makes it happen, and the broker receives a fee called a commission uh, for uh, making. It, bringing these people together so that they could find each other and make the deal, and make the trade. For dealer, um, we have a different. Uh, it's DHPM. Okay, uh, a dealer uh, acts. For, uh, we'll say herself, 
or himself uh, as a principle for a markup. That's the fundamental difference. Uh, in contrast to a broker, the dealer actually buys and sell, sells uh, himself or herself. And, uh, and that means the dealer uh, has an inventory of whatever it is that, uh, so that the dealer is, has something to sell. If you, if you uh, go to a dealer and buy a security, you're buying it from the dealer out of the dealer's inventory. Uh, if you sell uh, through a dealer, you sell to the dealer. Okay. So there's a fundamental difference. The markup is the difference between the uh, price that the uh, dealer uh, uh, buys and sells at. So you see that there's a fundamental difference. Now, uh, securities law says that you can never function as both a broker and a dealer in the same transaction. You've got to be one or the other. The same person can do both. You can be both a broker and a dealer, but not in the same transaction. Uh, we also have the term uh, in finance, broker hyphenated dealer, and that's called BD. All right, a BD is a firm that hires, that, that employs brokers and dealers. Okay. Uh, and so uh, the fact that they hyphenate them doesn't mean that any one transaction involves both broking and dealing. Um, so uh, the, uh, uh, you can see the difference in, in ordinary life. When you buy and sell a house, your real estate agent is a broker, right? The real estate agent usually does not buy the house from you if you're selling your house. Uh, or if you call up a real estate agent and say, I want to sell your house, the, the agent doesn't say, okay, I'll buy it. So that person is operating as a broker. However, if you go to an antique shop uh, and, uh, and say you want to buy a, a chest of drawers or a dining room table, you will be dealing with a dealer, right? And I guess there's fundamental reasons in, in why it works out well in one and why, why that tends to break down differently for the different. Why is it that we have dealers for antiques and brokers for homes? Well, I think it has something to do with. Uh, <sighs> can you tell me why? Why do we do it that way? Uh, I was thinking it has something to do with the information cost of. Uh, since make, buying a house is such a big decision. Um, and you've got to go looking at the houses anyway, right? Somehow antiques, you, you wouldn't have an antique broker, right, would you? <laughs> uh, the antique, I guess you could. People could have antiques for sale in their homes, and the antique broker would take you around on a tour. I wonder if that's my Blackberry. I'm so wired up here. Uh, That was my BlackBerry. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, 
Okay, so uh, okay. Um, so the uh, anyway, uh, the uh, concept of a broker dealer uh, is that uh, it is something regulated once again by the Security and Exchange Commission. So that means any broker-dealer must register with the SEC. So in that sense, we have a sort of licensing for broker-dealers. Broker-dealers, in turn, are responsible for their, um, for their employees who are acting as brokers and dealers. And uh, the employees um, will have to be appropriately uh, licensed. And so what broker-dealers do is, um, according to our securities law, uh, they would manage their employees' uh, exams through FINRA now. I mentioned that before. That's the successor to National Association of Securities Dealers that uh, has exams for uh, brokers and dealers. Uh, and so uh, what it is, a, a broker-dealer is a company that, uh, that hires people and they become uh, licensed as brokers or dealers through uh, their own broker-dealer uh, using FINRA. And so that's the organization method that we have. The reason why we have it this way is that there are so many instances of bad behavior among brokers and dealers that have to be uh, that have to be handled. And, uh, this goes back to a basic theme of this course, that human nature is imperfect. And while economics theory tries to describe people as honest and following the rules, there are so many opportunities for bad behavior uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that have to be uh, corrected. So I, I've taken the licensing exams for FINRA because I wanted myself to do, uh, to do uh, uh, creating of securities, uh, and I think it's actually a very good uh, program they have, uh, and they have continuing education that brokers and dealers have to take. And one thing that they do in the continuing education, I, I was impressed with uh, what they've come up with. They have actors and actresses portraying situations. That brokers and dealers will come up with, will encounter, that are not uh, quite ethical. All right, so uh, you know you'll have. Uh, I remember <laughs> there was a scene where a woman comes up to the broker dealer, and, uh, and there's a document that she has a joint account with her husband, and there's a document uh, that requires both their signatures, and the broker dealer hands it to her and she signs, and then uh, and then he says, okay, can you get your husband to sign it? And, and he said, she says, oh, he already did, look, <laughs> right in front of the broker-dealer. Uh, and then they show the broker-dealer backing down. This is in the skit that I saw, uh, and accepting, okay, you know, she said, I'm sure it's all right with him. And so he says, all right. And then the skit goes on and shows how much trouble he got into for accepting. You know, then the husband shows up the next day, and they're getting a divorce, and he's furious, and um, he tries to cover it up by, pretending he didn't know, and then 
she then comes back and admits that he just told me it was all right that my husband, I could sign for my husband. So there's all kinds of moral issues that arise. And I think that the system works as well as it does uh, because we have institutions. We recognize that there's a tendency for all kinds of bad behavior. So my own experience with FINRA was uh, uh, increased confidence in our broker-dealers. I think that uh, we have a good system, that there's going to be a lot of uh, t uh, temptation for bad behavior. Uh, we have a pretty good system uh, in this country for, uh, for educating people not to do that. Uh, we also actually go after broker-dealers who do things that are seemingly innocent. So, for example, churning. I mentioned this before. Churning is uh, over-trading a customer's account. So, um, it's, uh, it's not obvious to un uninformed investors that it isn't a good idea to trade stocks every other day. <laughs> okay. You be, uh, uh, but it's obvious to anyone in the field, if you're trading stocks that frequently, there's just no way that you could make money. Uh, because there's nobody who can get a 50% return uh, on <coughs> stocks with reliability. You know, we know that David Swenson, we've mentioned him before, has got 18%, but he's the star, right? And you're not going to do that well, realistically. So if you're churning, if you're paying more than 18% in commissions every year, you, you, you just don't have a chance. And so, uh, you know, a broker could try to hide behind some kind of facade and say, well, but I think I can earn that. But uh, fortunately, we have a good enough regulatory agencies to stop that. And so, uh, right now, brokers who ch to churn their portfolios will be caught uh, by market surveillance, and they will be thrown out of the profession. It's actually, uh, you can be disbarred, uh, prevented from trading for life. So that's the kind of uh, regulations we have. I think it's a very, you know, the, the world is more ambiguous and <laughs> uh, faces more moral dilemmas than, than you would imagine. You have to get out into the business world and start seeing how often they come up. And it's kind of remarkable that we have a system that uh, handles these dilemmas as well as we do. You see a lot of anger now, like, for example, with the subprime crisis and people who supposedly or allegedly behave very badly. And certainly, some of them did behave ba badly. But we have a system that uh, I think uh, has developed over many years that, that works pretty well. Um, now, these are so brokers and dealers are people who work with the exchanges. Uh, but I want to go on to talk about the exchanges themselves. Okay. Um, on which these people trade. And this is, unfortunately, a difficult topic to keep up with because uh, the exchanges are changing every year. And I think a big impetus for change is the advance of information technology. And I might say also financial technology. This is a world in rapid change. Uh, it's not uh, fixed at all. But uh, I wanted to uh, just uh, talk about different kinds of exchanges that we have. Uh, traditionally, we say there's in the U.S. there are four markets, and the, the one of them is called the first market, 
and this is traditional, uh, and that is the New York Stock Exchange. I'm going to come back. It's now called NYSE Euronext, but uh, let's just be traditional for the moment. New York Stock Exchange is the old, original stock market uh, and the dominant one. And so we call that the first market. Then there's the second market, uh, and that is NASDAQ. Okay, and that, uh, that stands for National Association of Secu Securities Dealers Automatic Quotation System. Uh, that was the first uh, electronic exchange. Uh, it was founded. Oh, okay, New York Stock Exchange was founded in 1792. NASDAQ was founded. 1971. Very uh, different tradition uh, between the two. Um, and um, oh, I should say the second market, I have to add that, is the NAS NASDAQ national market. Because NASDAQ uh, is divided into two parts. There's the national market, and the third market, so-called third market, is NASDAQ small cap. Small cap is means companies whose capitalization is low. Uh, capitalization, remember, is the price per share times the number of shares. So it's the value of the whole company. Uh, and uh, uh, the um, small caps are, are treated separately on NASDAQ. And then there's the fourth market. Uh, and that's uh, beyond the exchanges itself. This is uh, it's large institutions trading amongst themselves. Uh, it does happen. There's no law saying you have to go through an, an exchange. You can just <laughs> buy and sell whatever, and, and especially if it's a very large transaction. Uh, it can happen with, uh, that uh, as part of some deal, uh, institutions will trade shares, uh, and they don't have to go through the market. But uh, we we really think that these are the most important uh, markets. Uh, so let me uh, incidentally, these are not the first stock exchange. The Uni United States did not invent the stock exchange, uh, and I think maybe I mentioned this before, but. Ulrika Malmandier, who's a professor at Stanford, uh, has researched the ancient Roman stock exchange <laughs> and claims to have identified, I think I said this before, but has it claimed to identify where in the Roman Forum the Roman stock brokers uh, worked. And it was out of a certain temple. You can find the location when you visit Rome now. I think it's in ruins, but you can find where they traded stocks. But it was never very big. Uh, and then some people say Antwerp had the first modern stock exchange, I don't know, like many centuries ago. Uh, Amsterdam was an early, uh, London was an early stock exchange. So we came kind of late in the United States to stock exchanges. 1792 is kind of late uh, in the world history. Uh, however, I think that the U.S. actually features somewhat prominently in the history of stock exchanges. 
because uh, there was a New York securities law eighteen eleven, which uh, became a model for securities law and, uh, and which made the stock exchange in New York especially important. The eighteen eleven securities law in New York uh, established two important principles. The first one was that anybody can set up a corporation and have it traded on the stock exchange. Anybody who follows, who satisfies some criteria uh, specified by securities regulator, but the criteria did not involve uh, the state legislature convening and giving you permission. It was automatic. Okay, it didn't matter who you were, they would do anybody. But of course, uh, there were there were restrictions. On, you know, the company may have had certain capital requirements and the like, but it was democratic. Until then, it used to be that in many countries, companies would require an act of parliament to be founded, or the king would have to sign something. Uh, now it was very clear that it was democratic. The other thing that the New York Securities Law of 1811 did is uh, make it law that limited liability uh, was always the standard. And that is that limited liability means that you, as a stock market investor, can never be sued for the misdoings of the company you invested in. This was a very fundamental step in, uh, in securities law. Because before 1811, while there were some limited liability, the idea was already out there, and some companies put limited liability clauses in their charters, it was never clear, never so clear as in New York. Uh, and so you didn't want to trade and buy a few shares on some exchange because you had the possibility of getting hit for that. They could come after you. Uh, so uh, with the New York Security Law of 1811, uh, the New York Stock Exchange began to really prosper because then it became something that anybody in the world could come in and, and buy a share there and have no worries, except you could only lose your money that you put in, nothing more. So uh, that turned out to be a very important innovation which came in the U.S. and it accounts, I think, for the importance of New York. Uh, in finance. Uh, it was copied you know, you know, later in the 19th century all over Europe, this, this, this kind of securities law, but it took a long time. Okay. So uh, the New York Stock Exchange was founded in 1792 uh, outdoors <laughs> under a buttonwood tree. I've always wondered what, what was a buttonwood tree. Uh, they, I guess. Some, some stock exchanges occurred in coffee houses. People used to like coffee just as they do now. And that's like a good place to trade stocks. You'd be at Starbucks or something in London, probably, the equivalent of Starbucks. And it would be a natural place to trade stocks. Uh, but uh, actually, the New York Stock Exchange was founded under a buttonwood tree. I, I looked it up. A buttonwood tree is just a sycamore uh, or American plane tree. And we have them. I was wondering. We have them around here. They're just outside somewhere. Uh, and I don't know why they call them buttonwoods. <laughs> Maybe they made buttons out of them, out of the wood. Uh, but uh, so uh, 
the system has uh, gone on now for uh, uh, well over 200 years, but it's changing uh, because of uh, our technology. Uh, and uh, so, um, it's one of the themes of my uh, book, New Financial Order, is how much technology has advanced uh, our financial markets and institutions. So, there were some. Uh, if you look at the number of stocks traded on the London Stock Exchange, say around 1800, it was just a handful. It was just not very big or not very important. Uh, but it was certain kinds of information technology that really made stock exchanges uh, take off. And I'd like to just mention a few of them. Uh, one was uh, we were living in a very primitive world in 1800. You know, people were actually using feather pens. <laughs> uh, that was that's what 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 you would use in, at that time. Um, also. Paper was very expensive in 1800. If you bought a newspaper, if you look at newspapers from 1800, there would be a single sheet, typically, that folded in half of paper. And why was that? Well, it's because paper was so expensive. Uh, because in 1800, paper had to be made out of uh, scraps of cloth. They didn't have wood pulp paper, and they didn't have. It had to be made by hand. You'd have people, you know, uh, washing the f fabric and and then. Uh, laying it on a screen all by hand and then rolling it, and so uh, it was too expensive. So uh, we got uh, in the 19th century, we got cheap paper, uh, uh, and then uh, we got. Uh, uh, I mentioned things that's important for. Uh, uh, we got carbon paper. This came in the 19th century, although there were some maybe primitive versions. Allowed you to make copies. The typewriter that came in uh, in the uh, 19th, late 19th century, uh, so you could you could make records much more accurately with uh, and make copies, and that's important to make copies so that they're backed up. Uh, we had printed forms, although those actually go back uh, to the. Um, in Holland, I think we trace them back to the maybe the 1700s. But the idea is having a document with spaces to fill in numbers, and then you put it in the typewriter. You've got printed up multiple copies of this with carbon paper between them, and you type. It's very accurate. Uh, it makes it possible to do business. Um, we invented filing cabinets in the 1890s. That's comparatively recently, isn't it? It's kind of amazing. Filing cabinet where you have the drawers that come out and you put file folders in. <laughs> it wasn't until the 1890s uh, that that came in. Before that, you would take documents and tie them up with ribbons and put them on bookshelves. Well, there may have been other systems as well, but we didn't have the modern filing cabinet. Uh, but the really important thing was electronic technology. Uh, and we had the telegraph. Uh, which came in uh, by uh, Samuel Morse in uh, when was it? 1840s? I think I might have it. Um, Samuel Morse graduated from Yale University <laughs> in 1810, uh, and he uh, patented the telegraph 
1837. So it was 1837. Uh, so I'll mention there's also a college here. Do you know, are any of you from Morse College? Yes, good. <laughs> Only one? Nobody else from Morse? Oh, there's a good number, yeah. Uh, so uh, he did something very important. Uh, incidentally, he lived, his house is uh, 58 Trumbull. Which is uh, three blocks from here, and if you want to, you can walk over there and see uh, Morse House. He used to have uh, inventions uh, parked out on his front lawn, but they're not there anymore. They've taken them, <laughs> taken them in. But this was a very important invention because electronic communication, uh, instantly or, or at the speed of light, essentially, uh, is what now uh, underpins our exchange, um, and. Uh, but the next thing that happened, and that's uh, a little bit later in the technology, was the ticker machine. Uh, and it's not entirely clear who invented it, but uh, because there's various versions. But apparently, it was invented by Thomas Edison. Uh, and uh, this was. Um, he was. Uh, he, this was his first invention. You've heard of many inventions of Thomas Edison. Quite remarkable that his first uh, invention was in the area of finance, and so that was in 1867. And how old do you think he was when he invented the ticker machine? He was 23. So that's just. A <laughs> Those of you who are thinking of your careers, some people get started at a good young age. Uh, on doing this was a this was a the, any, you probably don't even know what a ticker machine is. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? A ticker machine? Some of you do anyway. Uh, what it was was uh, a like a computer printer. I mean, he was just like way ahead of his time. We have these printers. You have one in your room, right, or somewhere that uh, when uh, the electronic signals come to it and it prints out uh, on the paper. Uh, well, he, de- he invented one in 1867. Uh, what it did, so you remember the telegraph machi- machine that Morse invented, uh, was it required humans on both ends. One person would be tapping on the Morse code on one end, and there'd be another person listening on the other end who would transcribe it by hand. So Edison thought, well, there's no reason why it shouldn't be done mechanically uh, at the receiving end. So he invented. Uh, a sort of automatic typewriter that uh, printed out, and the uh, the initial application of it was to uh, stocks because that was that's the kind of information people needed continually on a big basis. So he invented this printer, uh, and uh, though it's a little different from modern, we we have a standard paper size now, which is eight and a half by eleven, right? But he didn't want to use all that much. Remember, paper was more expensive then. And he didn't need to get a lot. He wanted it, so he changed the shape of it. So the paper, instead of being that wide, was like that wide, uh, because all he had to do put was put symbols for stocks, uh, abbreviations for their names, and then the price uh, at which it traded. Uh, and he wanted to get a lot of these in rapid succession out. So he didn't need a wide width, right? It's very, all very logical. So it was basically a computer printer with a narrow width. I, f- I forgot to bring it today. I should have. 
Uh, I was telling um, someone at the New York Stock Exchange that I was telling my students about the ticker machine. And students didn't, my students didn't seem to know anything about it. So then he sent me as a gift a ticker tape. Uh, it was just a roll of paper tape. So they were using uh, ticker tapes at the New York Stock Exchange until 1964, I think it was. Uh, and he said, well, we still have some in the attic here. <laughs> and he gave me a roll. Maybe I'll <laughs> try to bring it. So, uh, um, this, this is just maybe a curious history about uh, communications. But uh, do you know what a ticker tape parade is? Some, some of you, uh, the, um, uh, these ticker machines used to be printing out stock prices constantly. And so this tape was just constantly running. And so it would pile up in these huge wads of, uh, you know, of paper tape. And so uh, they had to always dispose of it at the brokerages because um, all this paper tape had to be thrown away. And it was a disposal problem. Whenever there was a parade down Wall Street, people would, uh, they would use this ticker tape like confetti. And they would tear it up into shorter lengths. And they would toss it out the windows. And so you'd see all this paper tape coming down. So we still, are, you know, this is all obsolete now. But in a, in a sense, it's, it's, it is electronic communication technology uh, that, um, uh, and I guess we're still wasting a lot of paper, right? We just changed the width. So we don't call it tape anymore. Uh, uh, we call it printer paper or something like that. So it's not, uh, not exactly the same. Uh, uh, so, uh, okay. So uh, the, uh, in, in the idea that we should have one market, uh, w when we have uh, ticker tape machines, uh, we still use the word ticker uh, uh, symbol for the short abbreviation of a stock. Okay, so um, every stock has a uh, abbreviated name. Uh, we don't need abbreviations anymore because our printers are much more effective. But we still have them, uh, and so that's the official. The ticker symbol is the official name for a, a stock uh, or other security that's traded on an exchange. Uh, so uh, the, when you have electronic communication, it should uh, create a national market uh, uh, that uh, uh, is where everyone is getting the same price. Uh, however, it doesn't necessarily work automatically. Uh, in 1975, uh, people made a number of complaints to our lawmakers in Washington that, in fact, while we have ticker machines and we have a lot of, well actually they were already gone by 75, but uh, there were a lot of electronic communications. But we're, some people were not always getting the same price. Someone would say, I placed my order in the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and I got a bad price. Uh, I realized later I could have traded at some other exchange. Nobody told me uh, at, at the same time. And so, um, so Congress created, uh, it was the Securities Act of 19. 75 wanted to create a national market system. Uh, and so Congress mandated that securities brokers set up some kind of electronic system that would allow uh, people to trade on whichever exchange has the best price. 
So it, it was uh, sort of a challenge to the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange because your broker, if you place an order with your broker, uh, this, we would have a new electronic system. So the broker would look over all the different exchanges and see which one has the best price. And so that's what you want as a customer. So it was implemented with something called the ITS, uh, Intermarket Trading System. Uh, uh, which allows a broker to look over all the exchanges and find the best price. Uh, and that was set up with computers in 1970 or in the early 1975, uh, or shortly after 1975. Uh, and so it's been in place uh, ever since. Uh, however, um, it was because it was mandated by Congress, uh, the computer system was up to date and modern in the early 70s or late 70s, but it hasn't kept up. Uh, and it's become considered uh, slow as a sort of dinosaur. Uh, and uh, um, people want to avoid trading in it. So uh, in um, 2006, all the major exchanges uh, proposed that we replace the ITS with something called NMS. Linkage, which is just a more modern version of the computer technology, but um, I don't—I I haven't heard anything about it being implemented. Now, again, since I don't trade, I, uh, maybe if some of you knows what's happened with this NMS linkage system. I, let me put this: NMS linkage was proposed. But you see what's happening. When the government tries to mandate a linking of exchanges, that's not uh, the same thing as having a market impetus for linking of exchanges. Uh, and so um, uh, what's actually happened is uh, really ignoring the national market system. Computer technology has advanced so rapidly, it starts to create opportunities for people to set up their own competing systems. And who cares about the ITS, which is a dinosaur, which uh, nobody likes? Uh, and so that, that's something we have to recognize, that there's different approaches, and there's going to be clever people who come up with new ideas about how to trade stocks. So um, this brings us to the so-called ECNs. Uh, they were called Electronic Communications. Networks. Uh, and what happened was, with the advent of the internet in the mid 1990s, people started setting up websites that uh, they looked like stock exchanges, but maybe they weren't. Uh, the, uh, um, I guess the first one was uh, Instanet. Uh, I'm not sure it's the absolute first one, but Instanet was. Uh, now understand that an exchange has to register with the SEC, and the SEC has all kinds of requirements. Uh, and if you're setting up some website, you probably can't satisfy all those requirements. So Instanet set up uh, an electronic bulletin board, I call it, which was not an exchange, 
but it was a place where people interested in buying and selling shares could post their interest. It was like an electronic bulletin board. Uh, and uh, uh, so it would be especially important for people who are uh, placing really big orders uh, because uh, they might want to uh, not just put it on the floor of the exchange, but to uh, uh, they might want to um, say something <laughs> on, the, on the thing about, you know, under what conditions I would buy this or something like that. So it uh, became more flexible and became very popular among institutional traders. Uh, then there were uh, a number of other ECM. Now the SEC allowed them to be uh, to function as ECNs, which is a separate category, uh, and they started to look like exchanges. And I, I guess the legal history of these is very complicated. Uh, they ended up merging with exchanges. This is in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, I remember one that impressed me because I heard in the 90s a talk from the founder. Island was an uh, exchange that was created. Can you see this? Uh, um, that was created uh, for small investors. Uh, and uh, it actually started to look a lot like an exchange. Uh, what I found interesting about Island, the, the person I heard speak about it in the 90s uh, spoke of this as democratizing institutions, and it was the web culture taking over what the stock exchanges had done. Uh, and so what Island did is it posted its limited so-called order book, uh, order book on the web to the whole world to see. Uh, and uh, uh, it, uh, it was kind of challenging stock exchanges, which had kept the order books uh, more or less in secrecy. So let me just step back and let's go back to what happens on an exchange and how uh, Instanet and Island are different. There was another one, another big one was called Archipelago. That sounds like Island. Archipelago. It was another website that you used to be able to get on. And you could read these order books for any stock, and you see some. But let me let's step back and talk about what goes on traditionally at the New York Stock Exchange, and still goes on today. The New York Stock Exchange, which is the biggest stock exchange in the in the U.S., but also, in some ways, the most old-fashioned. They still have a floor, a trading floor. Most stock exchanges. Um, have uh, uh, abolished their trading floor. I just gave a talk in Moscow uh, at their stock exchange, and I was mentioning something about trading floors, and someone raised his hand in the audience and says, you're talking at the Russian stock exchange trading floor. That's where my talk was. I didn't even know I was in it. Uh, I was in the German uh, Frankfurt stock exchange, uh, and I was, uh, uh, they said, Let's show, I'll show you our trading floor. So I walk in and I just see a bunch of school children, uh, and they had <laughs> there was nobody there except school children. It had turned into a museum. Uh, that's what's happening all over the world. Everything is going electronic, but the New York Stock Exchange uh, and the Toronto Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange are the few. Uh, ex or is it the Montreal? I forget now. 
Anyway, there's very few that still do it this way, but we still have a floor, okay? And so um, you have, um, for each stock, you have a specialist uh, who stands at a post uh, on the floor of the exchange. So each stock has a specialist, okay? Uh, and then uh, you have uh, traders who roam around the floor and go to, uh, these are uh, brokers or dealers who are, um, uh, who are trying to buy and sell stocks, uh, and they go to the various posts uh, and they make their rounds. They have so many stocks they want to buy and so many they want to sell, and they go around uh, uh, on the floor of the exchange. And if they want to buy a particular company, they go to they know where that specialist is and they go there. On the floor of the exchange, they can either uh, buy and sell from the specialist who is a dealer who maintains an inventory, or they can buy and sell from anybody else they meet at the post. Because everyone there is licensed, right? It's not open to the public. So what happens is there is a crowd that develops at each specialist post. And the crowd uh, consists of uh, people who, uh, have, who, who decided to go to that specialist post to look uh, uh, at what they want uh, to possibly buy or sell. So that they can buy and sell with, from anyone. The, the specialist is sometimes just standing there watching, and it's all happening. But the specialist. And the New York Stock Exchange maintains that the specialist fulfills an important function, which is to create an orderly market. So the specialist has a responsibility as well as uh, an opportunity. The other people at the crowd are just doing their own business. But the specialist is, is supposed to be obligated to preserve a good market. So if for some reason the, the uh, price is dropping rapidly, uh, and the specialist thinks something's wrong, the specialist is supposed to come in and buy uh, on his or her own account. To, to, uh, that's an obligation. Uh, and so uh, uh, there have been, been problems. Uh, for example, in uh, 1987, when the stock market dropped precipitously, there were criticisms of the specialists for not buying to support the market. But then specialists said in their own defense, what could we do? The market is crashing. So it, it's not clear that specialists make a huge difference, but um, that's the presumed advantage. Now, it used to be, this is an interesting historical thing, that uh, in the, before uh, the 1930s, uh, there, were, um, there were two crowds on the stock exchange. There was the, um, the buy-sell crowd. Uh, and there was another part of the floor, uh, I can't find this in my notes, uh, where stocks would be rented. Um, I had the dates here, and I don't remember. I can't find it in my notes. Um, well, anyway, uh, shares are, uh, it's called the loan crowd. There used to be a special part of the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where stocks would be lent rather than sold. 
Right? There's two things you can do. There's two kinds of trade. You go to a real estate broker, you can say, I want to buy a house, or you can say, I want to rent a house. And the broker can do both of those for you. Uh, same thing with stocks. You can say, I want to buy a stock, or you can say, I want to rent a stock. Or you can go the other way, I want to sell a stock, and I'd like to rent out my stock. Why would anyone want to rent a stock? <laughs> Uh, or rent it. Uh, well, the, the, that's called um, short sales, right? They would rent a stock and sell it. And so uh, uh, it used to be that, uh, uh, they, of course, if you're lending out a stock, uh, you might demand some compensation for that. So they used to, uh, to argue that there would be a specialist crowd called the, uh, there would be a loan crowd that would argue about the rental cost, which is an interest cost for loaning. For borrowing a security, and the uh, Wall Street Journal used to publish. There were two stock sections. There was the price section, and there was the loan section. Um, and that, however, disappeared in the after the stock market crash of 1929. And apparently, it disappeared because of um, concern that shorting stocks was the cause of the 1929 crash. And the story was that J. Edgar Hoover, who was head of the FBI, thought that shorting stocks had caused the crash, and he didn't like it. And if J. Edgar Hoover didn't like what you were doing <laughs> back then, you were afraid, <laughs> worried. So the New York Stock Exchange, without ever publishing it, just shut the whole thing down. And to this day, we don't have a loan crowd anymore. We do still lend out shares, but it's, uh, it's not done on the floor of the exchange. Uh, Anyway, the specialist at the floor of the exchange has a book. Uh, and it used to be a big, thick paper book. Uh, and what the specialist would do, uh, who would, uh, the specialist would uh, record in the book uh, uh, offers and uh, 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 bids and uh, bids and asked prices. There would be people who uh, would tell the um, the specialist that uh, I want to sell so many shares at such a price or buy so many shares at such a price. Uh, and the book would show uh, the list of orders that were outstanding. Um, now, this comes back to, um, I should clarify, kinds of orders. When you call up a broker, and say, I would like to buy or sell shares. There's different, you, could, you can give, you're giving your bro broker an order. You can give the broker a market order. If you give a market order to your broker, you're saying you only have to give the broker one number, which is a number of shares. So I can have a buy order or a sell order, market order. If it's a buy order, all I do is say, I want you to buy for me, let's say, 1,000 shares of this company, and whatever price is uh, out there. It just you know, get the best price you can, but execute it right now. Okay. So it only gives a, a number of shares. Um, another kind of order, however, is a limit order. And with this order, you have to tell the broker both the number of shares and the price. Uh, and uh, 
there's uh, either a buy or a sell. So uh, if it's a buy limit order, you want to say, I want you to buy the stock at any price up to the one I mentioned. So I would give, I would say like 1,000 shares uh, at $30 a share. Okay? And that means that uh, if it's a buy order, uh, I, you wait until, you don't execute it immediately. You execute it when the price falls below $30. A person would do this who thinks, I think this stock is a good buy at 30, but not where it's trading now at 35. So I just put it and just tell my broker, I'm placing, I, want you, I want you to uh, take this limit order, and I don't expect you to fill this order. Maybe you'll never fill it, you know? But I just want it to be there until I correct it. Uh, you're just supposed to be standing ready, and you're supposed to notice when the price falls below 30, and then you, then you buy. If it was a sell limit order, you would say, uh, I want you to sell it if the price gets up to 40. Um, and again, if, if it's above the current market price, it won't be executed now. It might never be executed. Uh, then there's another kind of order called a stop loss order. Uh, and with a stop loss order, like a limit order, you have to both give a quantity and a price to your broker when you place the order. But, and it's similar to it, but it's in a different. Uh, a stop, a, a sell, you could have the same numbers here. Uh, you could say 1,030 uh, for again, but it would have a different meaning. A stop loss order says to sell when the price hits 30. In this case, if, if it were a stop loss order for 1,000 shares at 30, it would be to sell uh, if, if the price today is 35. All right, not buy. It's, it's a different motivation that you would do a stop loss order. You see the difference? If it's a limit order, I'm saying, I think I, I, the stock is only worth 30. I want to buy it when it gets down to 30. With a stop loss order, if the, if the actual price today is 35 a share, I'm saying, I'm worried about the stock crashing on me, so I want you to get me out if it's crashing. And when the broker has to know, well, when do I get you out? Well, you have to say when. So that's, this is when. So you'd be telling, if it's a sell order, you would be selling, telling your broker, sell the stock if the price falls below 30. So you see, there's a fundamental difference between a limit order and a stop loss order. There's also a buy stop order. You can tell your broker, uh, I want you to buy the stock if the price rises above 40. All right? Now, why would someone do that? <laughs> why would you tell, have an order to buy the stock only if it gets expensive? Uh, well, the people who would do that are people who've shorted the stock. And if you've shorted the stock and the stock price starts going up, you're in potentially in big trouble. And so if you worry about that, then you can say a buy-stop order and place that with your broker. Uh, so what Island did, uh, I'm going back to, the, the brokers used to have uh, uh, these, all these orders, well, the market orders wouldn't end up on their book because it would just be executed immediately and it would be gone. But these limit orders and stop loss orders would be, um, would be on the book uh, of the broker. And the broker would then know the, mar the, the specialist at the exchange would have this book uh, which recorded customers' orders. Uh, and so the, the specialist would understand the market because it would have 
a whole uh, bunch of these orders on the books. Uh, the nice thing uh, about Island, when it became part of our web culture uh, in, the, um, in the 1970s, is uh, they created their own book on the web. And uh, so uh, you could get, uh, and you could actually, and it was free, open to everyone. Uh, and so, um, so, so you'd have the, um, uh, you'd have buy orders and sell orders. Uh, and this would be something you could see on the web. Actually, you can see things like this on the web now, too. But uh, not through Island anymore. But let's say this is some company. Let's say it's IBM, all right? Uh, and uh, you would see something like this. Uh, it would be the buy orders would, let me see how I get this right. It would be the first one would say for $90 a share, 100 shares. Someone's willing to, to buy a 100 shares at 90. <coughs> Uh, and over here, you would see something like someone is willing to sell at $92 and it's, let's say, 200 shares, all right? So um, there's no trade here, right? If somebody is willing to buy at 90 and someone else is willing to buy at 92, there's no trade. Then you'll see other orders. Somebody else is willing to buy at 89 and a half say 200 shares, and you can see these descending. I'm just making up numbers, 88 for 1,000 shares, and so on. Uh, on sell, we then see other people, someone who's going at 92 and a quarter for um, a 300 shares. I'm, I'm showing all the purchases in round lots. A round lot is 100 shares. Uh, but you could also have odd lots, but most of the time people put round lots on as their trade. Uh, and so this book would then sit there. There's no trade here, right? This is the, uh, this is the inside spread. That is, that is the, on the limit order book, those are the trades that are closest to execution, but it's not, uh, it's not an executable trade yet. Uh, so what would happen then, uh, and it was, uh, is you would watch the book, and since it's now electronic, it corrects itself quickly. I don't know what the specialists had to do with a feather pen <laughs> originally. They would have to cross these things out with ink, and uh, 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 the book was probably hard to maintain. But now it's all automatic. So suppose someone comes in with a buy order for uh, 100 at 90. I mean, a sell order for 100 at 90. So someone's willing to sell at a lower price. What happens immediately on this? This thing becomes executed and disappears. Uh, and uh, so uh, that you see that happening on the book. And so it, it's fun to watch uh, uh, an electronic book. Uh, this is what uh, brokers see who uh, are, are members of NASDAQ, and they see the electronic trading system. Uh, or, uh, of course, there's many such books now. Uh, that are available. Uh, so um, the dealer, uh, the specialist on the exchange, also has his own, his or her own bid-ask spread. 
which is uh, also an offer to buy or sell on the exchange. Uh, incidentally, Ireland would only allow one kind of order. Originally, it was only limit orders uh, because they didn't. They had a system where you had to put it onto their book, and so it, everything had to appear on the book, uh, and so it was just a limit order book originally. Uh, so the history of this. Oh, I, let me say. It. I guess one thing I wanted to. Uh, what I was leading up to is that the ECNs are, are history now. They've been generally merged and acquired. Notably, the New York Stock Exchange, which has been a holdout doing floor trading, uh, bought uh, Archipelago because Archipelago was growing so fast. Doing this kind of electronic trading was, was really catching on. And New York Stock Exchange began to worry that it was uh, starting to Get behind the times. So New York Stock, these things which were started by kids, <laughs> by uh, young college students in the late 90s, just grew so fast and they got so big that Archipelago was starting to look like it was going to get bigger than New York Stock Exchange. So finally, New York Stock Exchange merged with them, and they changed the name after 200 years in business. They changed the name to NYSE ArcaX. ARCA-X is short for Archipelago Exchange. Uh, but that didn't last long. <laughs> they changed their name again. They, they just merged. New York Stock Exchange merged with the European Stock Exchange, Euronext. And so now it's called NYSE Euronext. And everything happens so fast. <laughs> it seems fast to me, maybe. Uh, uh, the uh, New York Stock Exchange is in the process, we think, of merging with the American Stock Exchange. Uh, and that's happening right now. Um, but I, uh, I wanted to just uh, finish with just a little bit uh, of a thoughts about what it means to be a dealer in this market. Uh, and uh, what is it that if you are a dealer operating on one of these exchanges, you are placing orders effectively in somebody's book. and, and uh, 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 and standing ready to buy or sell, a dealer is someone who is trading every day and uh, who has an inventory of stocks uh, for trading. Uh, and I wanted to just maybe close with a little thought about what it's like to be a dealer. Uh, I've never been a dealer, and I don't know the emotional thing, but uh, the problem with being a dealer uh, of any kind, uh, and maybe it takes a certain moral stamina, mental stamina to do this kind of thing, is that you're trading every day, right? You're not someone who's managing the Yale portfolio. What you're trying to do is make money every day by buying low and selling high. Uh, and you have to be ready to stand ready to take orders because people come to you, right? Someone will come to you, or there'll be someone in the specialist crowd who wants to place an order uh, or buy or sell. And you have an inventory. You're like an antiques dealer. Uh, and um, uh, the prob one problem is that uh, your life's work, unfortunately, as a dealer, is summarized by your portfolio <laughs> and your inventory. Uh, that's why I didn't become a dealer, actually. I, don't, uh, uh, I guess you have to have the right uh, Stomach of steel, or something. But the, the thing that I wanted to impress on you is that 
no matter how well you do, uh, your cumulative score is there in your portfolio, and it's a competitive business. And so you run the risk of being ruined at any time in your life. Uh, and so th this just, I wanted to remind you of the, what's called the gambler's ruin problem, because being a dealer is a little bit like being someone who goes to the gambling casino every day. Uh, if you enjoy your visit to the gambling casino, maybe you want to be a dealer. Uh, actually, I don't really enjoy it, so I, I'm just not the right person to do this. Uh, but what I really wouldn't like about it is that you always stand the chance of being ruined, that is, losing everything. So I just wanted to review. This is a little bit of mathematics that um, is in uh, mar market microstructure theory. Um, okay. Um, so uh, suppose you're a dealer, and uh, you have a way of either winning or losing money on each transaction. Okay. Uh, and suppose the probability of winning on a, on a transaction is equal to p. Um, okay. Um, that's the probability of winning on one of your trades. And to simplify this thing, let's say that you either win or lose. Uh, if you win, you get one dollar. Uh, if you win, if you lose. You lose one dollar. So you win one dollar with probability p, and you lose one dollar with probability one minus p. Okay. Uh, so I want to know what what is your life life career going to look like if you're just doing this every day for the next thirty years? <laughs> okay. Um, well, the first question is, uh, what, what is, what is the probability uh, of your being ruined? And let, let's start with the case p equals a half. And, and let's not say 30 years is close enough to infinity, but let's just say you're going to do this forever, because uh, I don't, I don't want to have to figure out the effect of the last day. What do you think is the probability of being Remember, being ruined means having your inventory fall to zero. So you start with uh, S dollars. That's capital S dollars, all right, which is an integer. When S falls to zero, you are, quote, ruined. You don't have any money left. You're out of the game. And, and you will be dismissed from the exchange <laughs> if you can't trade anymore. You don't have anything, all right? So you have to start with something, otherwise, you can't trade at all. And so S is something like $100. If p is a point, does any of you know the answer? What, what's the probability that I will eventually be ruined? This isn't something that you got in your probability theory. 100%. Oh, you got it right. Yeah, I don't know who said that. <laughs> That's right. It's a hundred percent. You will, with certainty, uh, be ruined. Uh, and in fact, the probability of ruin. Is uh, is one minus p divided by p to the s power if p is greater than 0.5 or greater than equal to 0.5. Um, 
that's because uh, if, you, if you substitute in 0.5, this is 1. So the probability of ruin is 1. But uh, if, it's, if the probability is greater than 0.5, then the probability of ruin will be something less than 1. Uh, this is actually easy to derive because think of it this way. Uh, we'll call this the probability of ruin if you have s dollars. And the reason it has this is because um, if I start with s dollars, uh, there, there are two um, possibilities, either gain one or lose one. So uh, this probability of s has to equal to p times the probability of s plus 1 plus 1 minus p times the probability of s minus 1, right? Uh, that is the probability, this is the probability of ruin if you have s plus 1 dollars, and this is the probability of ruin if you have s minus 1 dollars. So the uh, de function determining probability of s has to satisfy this equation. And also, we have the restraint. The probability of ruin if you have 0 dollars is 1. And so uh, this is a difference equation. If you solve it, you get this. Uh, so uh, what it means is that you had better have a probability of winning substantially above 1 or else have an awful lot of, of dollars <laughs> to start with. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it's hard to get the probability of winning in any one trade much up above a half because you're living in a competitive marketplace. Uh, and so uh, if, uh, if P is close to a half, it's just a little bit above a half, then you will be standing for your whole life always with a probability that the rest of my life is going to end up in ruin. Uh, so you may have been very successful, and you now have uh, 1,000. S is equal to 1,000. Well, the probability keeps going down, but it never hits zero. Yeah, R2. Well, that's what you have to, that's what people do. <laughs> well, they are taking money off the, or maybe, yeah, because they are doing that, uh, uh, you, you live your life and you, you take money off. Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I don't have to uh, play it out uh, to the bitter end like this. Uh, but I wanted to show, this is actually, this mathematical model is something that you will find in the page one of, or, or chapter one of a micro market microstructure textbook. Because you're right, there's strategies that can prevent ruin like that. Um, but this is the basic, uh, this is just, I'm presenting this as a very simple model um, of, of what underlies the restriction on a, on a broker. So a broker has to, has to, um, uh, create a strategy such that this p is sufficiently probable that this ruin problem doesn't become uh, catastrophic. And the way they do that, they set the, the bid-ask spread that a dealer has uh, with uh, consideration of this ruin problem, which has to be the focal point of their attention. Uh, and they have to set the bid-ask spread wide enough so that they feel comfortable enough with this probability of ruin. Uh, and uh, 
if you don't, of course, it's a competitive market, and so you can't get this probability up too high. Um, and so, if you don't like this, uh, don't become a dealer. <laughs> That's the way it is. So the people who are in this business are people who can tolerate this prospect of ruin. Um, um, but yeah, on the other hand, ruin isn't death, and that's another thing you're saying. I can make a living doing this for a while, and uh, I am taking money out, and that's part of the strategy. Um, so maybe I'm just being too much of an academic here. Uh, I, li I live in great comfort in academia, <laughs> and these beautiful surroundings. This university has been around for 300 years. You know, I have no worries. Uh, and so you might want to consider an academic career <laughs> instead of a career in finance. All right. Uh, so I hope to see you uh, again then uh, on Friday. I think we'll have a good time with uh, Schwartzman. <laughs>